Backseat's musical podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts, with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. And, in fact, they're not just a dispensary. They're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com. CannaProvisions.com. Please be over 21, and please consume responsibly. And now it's time for Baxi's Musical Podcast. Baxi's Musical Podcast. Of all the bands that came out of the UK, 1976 and 1977, a very strong case could be made that none of them were as original or as mysterious as the band Wire. This was a band that was post-punk about 10 seconds after punk began in the UK. While The Clash and The Sex Pistols and The Damned were cranking out singles and making headlines, it was Wire who was far more interested in expressing themselves artistically. They didn't look like punks, they didn't sound like punks, and yet they were lumped into the same nebulous category simply because there was no other way to define what they were doing. And so, when they released their incredibly influential debut album, 1977's classic Pink Flag, there was no denying the importance of their music, even if it defied classification. Their next two albums, 1978's Chairs Missing and 1979's 154, were equally amazing. But they never released hit singles, and they never made it to Top of the Pops. And I think that was the point. They didn't have to. After 1979, Wire took an extended break, but came back in 1987 with a vengeance and then would release 14 more studio albums. And this month, Wire will release a fully remastered collection of bootlegs that were recorded as far back as 1978. This new collection, entitled Not About to Die, is fantastic. And if you've ever heard the original bootlegs, the remastering is astounding. And the man who spent the last 46 years as the longest-serving member and principal songwriter of the band is my guest today. It's Colin Newman of Wire. This is a wide-ranging interview where we go on to talk about the band, the music business, the Sex Pistols, touring, a new documentary, and the long-standing collaboration with his wife, former minimal compact bass player Malkus Spiegel. With the band Githead and Immersion, they also do a radio show together called Swimming in Sound. This is my conversation with Colin Newman of Wire on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hello, Mike. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. And you? Good. I just spent uh, some time talking to your uh, wife today, uh, Malka. She was absolutely lovely to talk to. Well, and she I- is lovely to talk to. And I know I know she that she was a bit confused, actually, because <laughs> I, I thought we could have done it straight after mine. We could have, but like uh, like any man in his 50s, I, I needed a bathroom break. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. And, and Let, I- let's not belabor that point. <laughs> But anyway, no, I had a I had a great time talking to her, and and uh, and I've become, I was I was telling her I was becoming a big fan of the collaboration between the two of you, and 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 we'll talk more about that. But but please thank her for that because I mean it, it was really a, a lovely conversation with her. I really appreciate it. Malka, I mean, I think since we started doing our radio show, I think Malka's just uh, ability to just talk in these kind of situations has just really really improved. It's been a great kind of means of her 
um, just being able to just, you know, English is not her first language and she's not always been comfortable about talking about what she does. And I think she's got just way better with, with it. And uh, yeah, I'm really delighted that it, it worked. I've been, uh, I've been listening to not about to die for the last uh, couple of days. I was given a, uh, like a preview copy of it. And as a, as a long time fan, I have to tell you that it's, it's just fascinating to listen to this, to this album. And the story behind it is really interesting too. These these were initially illegal bootlegs of wire songs that were supposed to, that had been recorded prior to Chairs Missing and and, and one fifty four. Tell me about that bootleg. How did it get into the wrong hands, and how did it reemerge oh. for you? Well, actually, uh, yeah, that's a, how did it got into the wrong hands is a question I don't know the answer to, but. Um, it was normal back in the day for uh, demos to circulate on cassette. And uh, EMI insisted, uh, as record companies did in the 70s, that we would demo every single song that we were intending to record so that they would, before we would be allowed into the recording studio, we'd have to provide demos of the songs that we wanted to record. So there are, there is a complete set of demos of pretty much all of the material end, that ended up on, on the first three albums. And they were all initially re-released by us for the first time legally on the special editions of the first three albums we put out in 2018. Obviously they were expensive items and they're all pretty much gone now and uh they, they, you know it's you have to be a you've had to have been a fairly hardcore wire fan to really have, have bought, initially bought those uh the the story of the of the uh of, of not about to lot to die is of course something completely different um i remember in the sort of mid 80s um we we went to we were starting a tour in new york and um, there was a guy called Peter Wright who used to work for Mute. Uh, he's still very much involved in the music industry and he lived in Alphabet City. We're talking mid 80s. Alphabet City was rough. I mean, really <laughs> rough. And we kind of we, we all kind of turned up to his place because uh, we liked Pete, um, Peter and we wanted to kind of hang out for the afternoon. And uh, there was a guy doing crack on the doorstep. This is one of those, <laughs> one of those images that you kind of remember. So he lets us in and then he holds up this record and says, listen to this, everybody's got this. And we were like, what's that? And, and then it's like everybody said, oh, yes, our demos. I mean, a typical of a band, you know, it's like nobody is initially thinking, what, how did they get those? And somebody is making a load of money off of you know, our work. Right. Uh, it just, there were, there were various demos that actually got released, but they were mainly of live recordings. And this was, I think, I think it's the only uh, bootleg of, of studio demos. I mean, someone might know a different answer to that. There are wire nerds out there who know way more than, than <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, so basically I started to think about what ownership of your own assets actually means. I mean, this has been a, like a big story. It's a defining story of, you know, this decade for wire. Right. Uh, right. Because in 2017, um, wire became the owners of our own 
70s catalogue, not the 80s catalogue, the 70s catalogue, which is basically the classic catalogue. And it was it was a long story how it happened, but um, I was really, really determined to make that happen. And I figured out in the end how to do it. Um, it was greatly helped by the fact that EMI went bust and... <laughs> Britain was still in the EU at the time, so EU monopoly laws uh, would not allow basically one major to acquire all of the assets of another major. That means the number of majors in the market went from three to two at that point. Right. Um, and and there was there were there were there were monopoly issues, and uh, you know it it was it was an interesting thing to do and. Uh, it just occurred to me that wouldn't it be like it would be an interesting comment on a the fact that wire owns this and b the difference between now and then i mean in a way the sort of when you talk think about something like not only were record companies back in the day i mean they still are largely exploiting artists the the only ones that really don't end up being exploited are the ones who are really successful who have good enough lawyers to make sure they're not exploited <laughs> but not only being exploited by the record company but exploited by freeloaders who are basically bootlegging your stuff right you know this right. is this is you know it's like artist victim you know i mean you do your work in good faith i mean our demos were not really intended to be heard by anybody I mean, we were just playing stuff. We were just dem literally demonstrating our material. Uh, and, you know, we there were things that we changed our mind about, you know, yeah. for various reasons. Um, and But what those people who put together that original bootleg did was they went through what is, I mean, it's quite a lot of material, all those original demos. There were like, I don't know, seven or eight sets of demos. I mean, it's a lot of songs. Mm. And they went through and picked out all the ones that didn't get recorded, you know, in a sort of final version. Um, and all the ones which were significantly changed by the time they got to the studio. So in terms of a Wire fan, that was a very pop selection yeah they chose the ones that the wire fans would be interesting because they wanted to sell a load of their bootleg and uh but but then again that means it it's almost becomes like a ready-made there that that's the item that is the item. it's exactly the same item it's obviously uh, the, the audio sounds considerably better because it's not being mastered from cassette right um and we pushed up the sleeve i wanted to keep the sleeve looking roughly the same because, you know, there is part of this, which is just a big finger up to the original people. Who did. We, we're never <laughs> going to find out who did it. And I very much doubt whether somebody's going to say, oh, I'm sorry, guys. You know, we made all this money. Here's a check for like so many thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's not going to happen, you know, in the real world. Well, you know, what's, um, what's, what's, what's really interesting about the final result of, uh, of Not About to Die is, and you, and, you, and you hit on it, and I think this is really the thing that I like the most about it is, the, there are versions of songs that you know, really appear to be in their infancy, and yeah. like the what what finally got on those albums, you know, you know, chairs missing or, or one fifty four. It's like the totally different songs. It's it's I mean it's almost like this is an album of purely new music. 
even though yeah, yeah. even though it's it, it it's not i mean these are all old songs but i mean that's what that's what is so fascinating about this is to see how the germination of these songs started and what they would become that to me that is totally worth the uh, the expense of buying any record of any bootleg at all yeah yeah so so absolutely so that we it, I think it very much captures that. Only this time round, wife can benefit from the uh, from the income from it. But I mean, artistically, there are some other things. I mean, uh, we have a promo team who do things like pick the, the kind of I'm doing air quotes here singles. I mean, there are no real singles these days. There are tracks which are pushed ahead, and uh, they were the ones that chose Stepping Off Too Quick. Stepping Off Too Quick, the reason why Stepping Off Too Quick didn't end up on 154 is because it it sounded on one level like a throwback. It sounded like it was a, a track that could have come just after Pink Flag. Right. But on the other side, it has this like expansive opening to it, <laughs> which is, you know, which makes it into this, kind of a whole other thing descending baseline that's very 60s psychedelic actually and of course once you're away from the the whole the, all of the fashion ideas around music of the time we're not in that period anymore we're definitely not in that period anymore um you can divorce it and say well that's that's a really good piece we should have recorded it <laughs> properly but i mean it sounds it stands as a good testament and you know if it became amongst the canon of more popular wire songs i don't think that would do anybody any harm no i don't think so either. I, I read an interview that you had done recently talking about uh, something to the effect that the, that that opening sequence in that song was the best opening sequence of any song ever recorded. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, it's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sort of comedy, comedy. I, I mean, I said it as a joke, but but at the same time, it's a great opening sequence. It is. It's a one. It's it's fantastic. That's what's so. And and I and I agree with anybody who would say, well, why didn't you record that? You know, say on the ideal copy or uh, a bell is a cup, you know, if a, a song that great that, you know, took this long for the world to see, it, it's almost a shame because it is a really strong song. I think, well, well, by the time we, we started doing what well, with the eighties thing is a completely different uh, question, but you know, the eighties was uh, Bruce's idea was year zero. This is a rather in, in hindsight, a rather unfortunate choice of phrase, but um, because of that was what Pol Pot, used uh with the decimation of his people uh but um yeah the idea was that we wouldn't do anything from the 70s so the in the 80s we didn't play anything from the 70s uh and that, but that was a sort of generational thing and that was a condition of the 80s because you know when a band will you know they'll come up and they'll have the, the band and the fans are kind of the same they're yeah. all the same yeah. age and, and they kind of go with them. And then when they come round to sort of later on, if the band still has all of the same fans and no new ones, then that's a kind of stagnation. And uh, I think that we felt that um, somehow instinctively without ever really saying it, that what we wanted to do was in a way, make new friends. 
and go somewhere else with the music, be more, we were always interested in being contemporary. So I think that's kind of the reason, but I was, that, that's a very, very long subject, which I shouldn't spend too long talking about because <laughs> we'll never finish. My, my introduction to Wire came in, in the 80s. Um, in fact, I saw uh, Wire play in Milwaukee. This would have been 87, 88, somewhere around there. And, uh, and I remember walking out of there just being completely mesmerized by what I had just seen. And in fact, the <laughs> next, the next day I, I bought all three uh, of the records, pink flag chairs missing and, and, and one five, four, I, I, I bought all three. And at that point, wire has had me since, <laughs> since, since then. So to go back and to listen to one and compare, uh, the other was really interesting. But one of the things that I've, I've always felt to be true of wire I, I think, I don't know if it's the media or music fans or whatever it may be, there's always this need to, to classify everybody. And uh, even though you guys came out in you know, 1976, 77, during, during punk in the UK, you guys were post-punk about 10 seconds after punk began. And I think that's the amazing thing about Wire, is that you were so unique at that time that it, it's almost impossible to really call Wire a punk band at all you were so different than what was going on back then what was what was the reaction people had to wire in those early days yeah i mean the, the sort of british context is a bit different because obviously um i, I mean i don't think anybody from wire had ever regarded that wire were ever a punk band at any at any point in in the traje trajectory uh, it, I, it's it's one of those words that gets thrown around punk of what what does it mean you know and it means that generationally it means different things to different people so we talk about the specifics of britain in 1977 1976 i mean the pistols broke in 76 and they so represented the whole idea of punk and they also inspired a lot of bands who sounded more or less exactly the same as they did <laughs> so anyone who's a little bit smart was thinking hang on we don't want to be the same as them because they exist already and so we kind of thought okay let's go somewhere else <laughs> and do something a bit different uh, also um wire original lineup we were of you know i was the youngest in the original lineup but bruce was uh, quite a few years older than me so so bruce and rob are kind of the older ones mm -hmm. and we we couldn't pretend to be 17 year old you know on the dole living in flats i mean everybody had been to to art school everybody had been through an education the, the education system we were all you know <laughs> educated people i mean th there was a whole there was a whole thing of um uh, people would sort of play they would play dumber than they were mm -hmm. and uh that was kind of, that wasn't really so interesting to do so yeah i think i think i think really to be honest it was in many ways how why i ended up uh getting a record deal was because uh, EMI got their fingers burned with the Sex Pistols uh, because the, the the EMI was kind of almost almost a national brand, right? And right. when 
when they did, I, I don't know, they did something, I can't remember, whatever outrage they did or whatever, the women at the factory making the records refused to work on them. And the boss of EMI, who was, you know, some kind of lord who hung out with the queen or whatever, was like, yeah, we can't be releasing this. Um, and, you know, the A&R department of EMI, or, or certainly Nick Mobbs, who was the person who signed this, was like, oh, my God, you know, we've just signed <laughs> the most important band of their generation, and now we're, we're having to drop them. We need to find some, We need to find the next thing. And we were manifestly the next thing. Yeah. I think that was how they saw us. And it didn't do any harm that early reviews said we were like the Pink Floyd of punk. Well, Nick Mods was the guy who signed the Pink Floyd. And when <laughs> he brought them in the door at EMI, everyone was like, you know, like these people are getting nowhere. You know, they're a bunch of scruffy hooligans. And uh, they ended up doing but Dark Side of the Moon and making a very large amount of money for the record company. So that people were trusting him. So, you know, we, we look weird. Our songs, you know, people thought our music was hard and harsh. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I don't know, people, uh, in general, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, right at the beginning, I don't think anybody liked us very much. I mean, <laughs> there were a few people. I mean, people like John Savage liked us mm -hmm. because they liked our attitude. But, I mean, the punks hated us because we, we wouldn't, we would play fast, but then we would play short. So a fast, short song, you can't get a good pogo going. And then we played slow. Slow <laughs> was really, really, really against the rules. You weren't supposed to play slow at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. on that level and on the sort of the level of the sort of more official side, the sort of record company side, they didn't get it at all. They didn't really understand it. Um, but somehow we managed to convince a few journalists that we that we were that that it, that it meant something and you know pink flag is still selling man yeah. so <laughs> so we must have done something right you know uh, yeah it's a very very hard to in a you know if we had like five or six hours i could explore this topic from like in different directions because i feel like i feel like i'm sort of i i, I have no I don't mean to sound um, in any way um, uh, like kind of pretending of not understanding of what's been done, what the band has done and all the rest of it. I, the, 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 the reality of it very often is um, things just happen, yeah. you know. Well, I, 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 I don't think you're being uh, you're, you're evasive at all. In fact, uh, I, I think you're being actually very kind because I think I just finished, you know, for example, I just finished watching that, the Danny Boyle series about the pistols. Yeah. And, I thought you'd bring that up. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and, and I'm only asking you about it because, you know, on a contemporary level, you were kind of, you know, around there. I don't want to say you were terribly involved in any of, uh, oh, no, of it. I saw and, the pistols. I saw the pistols four or five times in, uh, 76. Yeah. Probably in early '77, so I saw the pistols a lot of times. They were amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 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 uh, the show is kind of like a Disneyfied, you know, fairy tale version of of what happened, or at least that's what it appears to be. And and 
it's hard to tell, you know, what's what's right or what's wrong. Yeah, about that's it. a that's a that's a that's a generational view. Yeah, there was a review in the Guardian in the Britain who said uh, it was like a carry on film. Carry on films are like I don't know if you know, it's a kind of you know, uh, Ua Vicar Nidge, you know, wink wink nudge nudge kind of humor, <laughs> which was very popular in Britain in the fifties and sixties. I mean, um, the truth is that they were a comedy act. They were a comedy act from the beginning. They never took it that seriously. I mean, uh, Malcolm took it seriously. I think the band were just like doing well. I mean, I I remember seeing them. I can't remember which gig it was. I think it might have been that there was this punk festival in the hundred club that the world mm -hmm. and his wife claims to have gone to. Well, I, I was definitely there uh, both nights. And I remember there was this moment when Glenn Matlock kind of, they were obviously that, you know, the band was starting to get good and he was kind of looking at, John Lydon with a kind of smile on his face, you know, it's like, <laughs> wow, this is great, you know, kind of, you know, like you do. And um, John Lydon just scowled back at him, you know, it's like, you know, you're not allowed to smile, you know, and it seemed like, okay, okay, I see what's going on here, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, and, and it's fine. They were, uh, I would always describe them as a generational divider. I mean, but you were either with the pistols or you were old. That was <laughs> right. that was basically how it was. And uh, but it so quickly turned into a, you know, they already were a parody of a rock band. But then they kind of by 77, they become more or less a parody of themselves, um, which was a more difficult thing to deal with. But, you know, Wire had already started by that point. And I could give a flying you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I won't swear because I know this is a broadcast thing um, about the Sex Pistols. That there was a point when the Sex Pistols became really boring. It was just yeah st stuff in the newspapers. You know. Yeah. Well, I, th I think like uh, like any band that that gets you know successful or 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 obtains any level of notoriety, I think you're right. It's very easy to become a parody of yourself, and I think that's what 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 certainly happened to them and of course they imploded as a result of it but you know the bands that f would follow uh i think you know are are really significant and 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 wire did that they sex pistols had one very good record you guys banged out three brilliant ones in a row uh and i and i think anybody who has has studied that genre would agree that you know you know wire definitely stood out uh in in the and and the the quality of those records just, you know, kept improving and they, and they kept, you know, there was development in, in what you guys were doing as opposed to so many other bands at the time that were just so stuck in, in a rut and, you know, wallowing in, you know, in, in specific rules about music that has never been the case with wire, whether it was in the seventies or you know, the eighties and nineties. And, and even as far as your, your more, your, your later releases, you never just decided to be compliant or or or, or complacent rather you you just continue to move forward and i think that's one of the reasons why i appreciate wires as much as i do and i and and so thank you for that well i i think yeah i mean my obviously thank you for the very kind praise um i, I would say in general there's a problem with genre music i mean genres are great when they're being created 
and genres are great when they're being destroyed but people who just play genre music are boring you know how many you know you can see um go to you know like a, a heavy metal gig where you have kids of 14 and all of the band's merchandise all looks the same <laughs> and you know everything is the same they all do the same thing and it's like it's because there are rules that you have to follow a punk very quickly became that punk became uh something which in the narrowest definition was just you you have to do this 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 and this these are the rules of it and you're not allowed to break any of them which of course becomes orthodoxy not freedom you know and, and if you if you're really interested in artistic freedom then you don't really want to be stuck in any kind of orthodoxy right. that that's how i would see it i mean you know me me personally i I hate being identified with either punk or even post-punk, to be quite honest. I think there's an awful lot of dodgy post-punk. <laughs> um, and uh, I just think I find those categories kind of depressing. And the, the music I like is, as, as a listener, is really broad. I, I, you know, I like a huge uh, swathe of, of music. Right. Um, well, I, I think the reason why you guys have been placed there is because there's no other place to place you. You know, I think. In, in yeah, but that's. That, I mean, in a way, yeah, that's. I, I mean, it's kind of interesting that now the the other thing that's happened in this decade is a kind of understanding, because Wire now own its now owns its classic catalog, and streaming has gone from being something which just a few people did because they wanted to access to all the music that's ever been released to something which a huge number of people do but they're not interested in all the music that's ever been released they just want to hear the rolling stones or whatever's popular um wire has now seen is now seeing an unbelievable interest slash income from its 70s catalog which is just mm. people still like this is nearly it's nearly god knows how many years old it is now it's going to be 50 years old by the end of this decade i mean for god's <laughs> sake but you know it it's a, it's a niche you know and yeah we're not like pink floyd or the rolling stones or the beatles or somebody like that but within our kind of niche there is nobody can say nobody gets what wire is because a lot of people seem to get it very well i mean and they 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 it's comfort listening you know yeah the reason yeah. they're listening to pink flag because they want to hear something familiar um and it's it seems it's a crazy it's a kind of crazy period um this is there's a whole thing here about classic catalog and streaming and most artists don't own their own catalog so they don't really understand what's going on because i run pink flag right i know right. exactly what's going on and i see what is coming in and it's just unbelievable because you know we 
Labour gets the majority of the money. Well, the Labour gets the majority of the money also in the case when you're you're a signed artist. You see, and, and the <laughs> no. thing is, is that those those are big artists like your Bob Dylan's and all the rest of it. They've got good lawyers, so they've managed to get good deals off the back end. But there are, I will guarantee you that there are artists who are bigger than wire, who are seeing a fraction of what we're seeing because they're still on the same royalty percentage they were back in the days of the 70s or the 80s when they signed those contracts uh, because a lot of the the labels now they're owned by third parties you know it, you, you think of any classic label think about island from the 60s island is not owned by chris brackwell anymore it's owned by some major company and all of the artists that are on that label none of them have a personal relationship with whoever owns that now right. you know chris Backer, well would have been involved in making sure that the bands you know they made interesting records and all that you know there's a with indie labels it was always a a to and fro a relationship between the artist and the label now it's just assets owned and and increasingly those assets are owned by companies that aren't even record companies. Right. Well, let, just, well, well let me ask you this, because I mean, you're seeing this a lot now, especially with what would be termed as legacy artists, the, the Bob Dylan's, the, the Bruce yeah, Springsteen's yeah, yeah. where now, and or, or Neil Young, for example, where they're selling the, uh, the rights back, uh, you know, to their catalog for astronomical fees. I get, you know, for, for I guess for in, in my mind, if you are, of a certain age, you know, there's only so much that that catalog can bring you at this, at this stage in your life that maybe it's worth sending out. But for like a young guy, like a Justin Timberlake just sold his, he, I mean, the guy's, I don't even know if he's 40 years old yet and he's selling his, his back. Catalog. Well, what, what, yeah. Is he selling his, he doesn't, it is highly likely because all of those people have sold their publishing they haven't necessarily they don't own their catalog yeah because they haven't got that to sell but they have but they will have the publishing because the other thing i mean this is a very technical but um the thing with digital music is that um everything is calculated automatically so that means all of the people who make money out of streaming out of spotify and apple music nobody is sitting there adding it all up <laughs> it's just computers making the calculations of what they've been told to pay out and the record industry back in the early days of digital music uh made the major players who were apple music and spotify uh do something which has been very beneficial especially to legacy artists and that is the publishing comes off the top. Right. So publishing money in the classic classical days, a record company would pay the basic money for publishing when they pressed records. Obviously with, and that means it's relying on the record company to actually pay that money over and tell the truth about how many they pressed. Whereas with digital, the record company never sees that money. It goes straight to the publishing company. So that means that that percentage of the income is going direct to the publishing company. And those artists will be on 
somewhere between 70, 80% of that income. Mm -hmm. So they'll be seeing, they'll have been seeing a lot of income from that. And if I was Bob Dylan and I'm getting all this money coming in and I'm looking at that thinking, God, those records are like N years old and I'm still around and the money's still coming in. And after I'm dead and gone, they'll still, they'll still be coming in. Am I going to leave a mess for my family to fight it out over who gets what? Or am I going to take the money now, share it out and say, all right, guys, you've had it. You know, I, and I think, I think literally that's what people are doing. I think that they're, they're kind of, they're thinking, uh, yeah, why is doing something similar? We're doing it a different way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, you know, the legacy thing is kind of important because you've got your family and what you don't want is to leave a big mess with everybody fighting everybody else saying, oh, well, I'm, you know, and, you know, I mean, yeah, there's no, I don't think there are any uh, illegitimate children in the, in, in the wild <laughs> family, but, you know, you know, some people turning up saying, well, I should get this, you know, or I'm important. I should, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, legal battles between family members and different family members from different members of the yeah. group. You, 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 you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be part of the Prince family. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. this is so, so this is incredibly important to, to deal with these issues, which is dead boring. I've got absolutely nothing to do with music appreciation. <laughs> no, but it is, but it is interesting stuff. And it's interesting to hear from someone who, you know, who, who lives this stuff. And this, this is how, you know, you make, you know, your, your living. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting to get a real, you know, educated point of view from it because, you know, for, for fans, we just, you know, we don't really think about, you know, what it, ha what it means to have that kind of asset to, to, to work with and, and what that means to, to just, you know, sell it off. So, you know, in a, in a real profound way, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. Well, the other thing is, is that, is of course that because a lot of artists don't own their own catalog, it means that they are making record companies or the owners of those assets very rich a friend of mine who works in one of the major labels in literally in metadata metadata is the data which is used to calculate digital royalties yeah and he said to me he said wow you're the first artist i've ever spoken to that understands any of this <laughs> i said God, God, they must be making a lot of money, those labels said. They are making obscene amounts of money. There is a tsunami of money coming in from classic catalogue, and it goes right across the board. If I know what wire is earning, wire is a very little fish in this pool, then, boy, there must be, there must be artists out there who 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 aren't even aware of the fact, or there'll be plenty that aren't aware of the fact how much money is being made out of them because they seem to be getting something every month, you know, or whoever's you know every six months or something like that. Right. Uh, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this because you know one of the ways that other that other artists make their money is through through touring, and obviously, you know, in the, with with COVID that has uh, interrupted you know wire touring. I know you guys were you know, touring with the, the last album from 2020 mind high, which by the way is a great record, but you know, the, the, uh, the, the pandemic interrupted that you guys provided 
uh, refunds rather than, you know, schedule for dates that may or may not ever happen. Um, but from your perspective, uh, you know, do artists really make that money back on, on touring or is it much more of a complicated process than that? I, yeah. The finances of, I mean, I can only talk to what I know. Okay. With, with, um, in terms of the business of wire, I've really for really since 2010, I think I've kind of been pretty much dealing with that. And we were surviving off a combination of, you know, releases and touring, basically. That's, that's pretty much the combination of every band that goes on the road. And I've seen in this period, how a lot of bands are desperate to get on the road. I mean, absolutely desperate. I mean, we're really good friends with Holy F. Can't say the full name because of the swear in it. Um, and they were really, really, they really need to get on the road. They did a British tour back in April. Um, first date in Leeds, some guy starts coughing all over them. Mm. By the time they get to Brighton a week later, three of the band have got COVID. Yeah. Punchy, the bass, bass players throwing up in the toilet after the show. You know, it's just that's the reality. That's that's what people are going through. And you've also got um, there's a very it's a very difficult time coming up because you have what they refer to in Britain as the cost of living crisis, which is the fact that everything it's got energy has got more expensive um and and because of that food has got more expensive there's inflation in all major economies of the world it's not just america britain mm -hmm. has it quite seriously and uh what means is if people are spending more money on their basics they have less disposable income and if they're going to be going out to gigs they're going to be a bit more selective or maybe they're not going to go to any maybe they just go to some mm -hmm. you've got a combination of still covid reluctance from an older audience plus cost of living crisis plus the fact that all of the staff had to find other work you know the staff in the venues and everything had to find other work during the pandemic and so a lot of those haven't necessarily come back and the ones that have come back want to get paid more money um and so it's cost more money to put shows on but bands want the same to earn the same money from the shows because they need that income which means the ticket prices has to go up in a situation where everybody has less money i mean it's not a doomsday scenario because all these things are, are, are nuanced but now this year is not a great time to really really need to be touring right so so i i yeah why is not touring this year not for that reason there are lots of other you know why is not it's not a perfect setup you know uh but um i i would say that i think there are definitely people who think we're like super smart not doing anything because <laughs> it makes us look cleverer than we actually are but uh, you know the, the truth is, the truth is is that um uh certainly with the american dates uh botch our agent and i took this decision to pay everyone back because we'd initially thought to reschedule and then was like there's rescheduling rescheduling and then in the end we were like yeah come on let's 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a big believer that everything is connected to everything. And, and what you're talking about is exactly, a, you know, it, it, it validates that. It's, you know, you can definitely see how, you know, how the smart decision probably is just to, to sit and wait. And when the time is right and the economy does soften a little bit, then you go out and then, then you do what you got to do to make, uh, to make a living. And I, I also, I also think the funny, the weird thing about wire is when it doesn't do anything, it gets more famous. <laughs> this is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. Who would ever quantify this? That is not a strategy, but it's kind of the truth. But, but we will, I think, as and when, if, um, and that is more of an if than a, than a will be um i think that we will find a strange circumstance I, I you know i think that the the success of the of the classic catalog at streaming i'm has a big catalog you know pink flag has a big catalog i mean it's not just the early 70s or the, or the 70s records it's also you know everything since 2000 as well so there's and every all wire things sell wire just it doesn't sell in, it doesn't all sell in vast amounts but it it all month on month it all sells i mean yeah. there's we're perpetually remanufacturing physical products streaming digital sales they just happen you know yeah it's yeah. not something you can't i don't think that's anything you can kind of create I, that's, that's not a piece of marketing or anything like that that just that's just the reality of it you know it's it, it's for real so Next year is going to be an interesting year because I think finally we will get the documentary. Oh, wonderful. Uh, there's a career wide documentary that will come out and um, this, this will be a kind of interesting thing to see a, if we're still talking to each other after it. <laughs> and, um, and secondly, um, uh, how people will take this, but I think this is, a way I would, from my point of view, as the kind of, as the sort of the label, if you like, um, I think, well, this is a very good thing to, it's, uh, uh, how would I describe? It's a bit like a sort of um, uh, retrospective mm -hmm. mission. It's that, I think it's that kind of idea to, to place the band's work, all of it in context of all of the rest of it. Um, and I think, if that works out, then I think it will be a great thing. Um, I, I haven't, I really haven't seen, I've seen a couple of little bits that really they're not close to the final edit yet. But, um, and obviously everything got really delayed with COVID. Um, so yeah, that was, it was a difficult one. Well, you I, know. I, 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 I can't wait to see it. That That's one documentary I will not miss. Right now, the most kind of important thing that's going on here is, um, for me, for me as an artist and for Malcolm as an artist is the fact that we have a weekly radio show. It's fundamentally changed our attitude towards music in a way which is quite extraordinary. I mean, I spent from basically 2010 to 2020 constantly firefighting. I mean, but it was the always endless activity and trying mm -hmm. to keep up and try and keep on top of it. You don't, when you're in the midst of all that, have the chance to really step back and listen to other people's music. But how, why did you get involved in music in the first place? 
it was other people's music is because <laughs> people make great records. Yeah. I've always been a record person more than a live person. And being able to go back and sort of read to di discover music of now, to discover music across every genre, to be able to have the discipline to create a weekly show every single week. We've done a show. It's just about to come up for two years. And um, we are, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm just immensely proud of it. You know, um, th this is, uh, this is, yeah, it's the main thing I kind of wanted to mention, really. I, I think more than anything over the last two years, this has really changed me as a person. And I know it's changed Mark as a person. And we're different artists because of it. The, uh, the, the name of the, the radio show is Swimming in Sound, and swimminginsound.com yes. is the website that you can check that out on. And it's very, very cool. It's a really cool show. Colin, I, I, again, I, I really do appreciate the time today and, and, and best of luck with the new record and best of luck with the, uh, the radio show. And thank you again to, uh, to Malka. We had a great conversation earlier today. All right. Thanks very much, Mike. And look after yourself. You too. Thank you very much. Right. Colin. Take care now. All right. Cheers. The name of the new wire album is not about to die. It is fantastic. Also check out Colin's radio show with his wife, Malka Spiegel swimming in sound. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to review it, rate it, share it with all your friends. You can reach me at backs at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And again, thanks to Canon Provisions for their support. You can support them by going to canonprovisions.com. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.